tell your story, the more it convinces others that, wow, what we call refugees are actually humans like us. They have a lot more resilience than I am. Those are the labels that I want people to, to, to see when they see us. They don't have to see suffering, hunger, drought, famine, you know, all the negativities. Just let's reuse those words. If you use resilience for my story, I'll be very happy. If you use hunger and drought and famine and death and destruction, even though those things have happened, that's negative. Let's just use other words. Why don't you use, you know, multilingual guy, uh, multicultural man, the resilient man, the guy who's really not giving up, right? Those, those kind of things. And I think those motivate everybody else. You're listening to Seeking Refuge, a podcast sharing the human stories of refugees. Our guest for today is Abdi Noor Iftin, a best-selling and award-winning author, as well as an advocate for refugee and immigrant rights. Abdi Iftin was born in Mogadishu, Somalia, and taught himself English by watching American action films, earning himself the nickname Abdi American because of his love for the United States. While living through civil war in Somalia, Abdi used his knowledge of English to secretly dispatch stories about his life on American public media, and later NPR, the BBC, and This American Life. When the radical Islamist group Al-Shabaab rose to power, Abdi left Somalia and sought refuge in Kenya. Years later, he received a green card through the U.S. Diversity Visa Program and settled in Maine. In 2018, Abdi Iftin published his memoir, Call Me American. Your host for today is Jackie Burnett. Hello, Abdi Iftin, and thank you for coming and speaking to us on Seeking Refuge today. Super excited to have you, um, and I can't wait to dive right into talking about your memoir um, and your story and the documentary coming out. So if you wouldn't mind by just beginning um, by telling our audience a little bit about who you are um, and, and how you've got to where you are today. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Abdi Noor Iftin. I go by Abdi Iftin. I define myself in the following terms. Um, I am a former refugee and a, an advocate for refugee rights. And I am a uh, US citizen who has worked to be a citizen on this country. I'm an author, I'm a speaker, um, and I, um, I'm a fighter for, uh, for the freedom of those who have who are being oppressed as we speak. Yeah, thank you so much. It's super inspiring to hear um, all of the ways that you identify yourself. And I know you got it a few years ago, but um, congrats on getting that citizenship. I think you voted in the 2020 election um, and I'm sure that was a very proud moment for you. But I wanna focus, um, I know you released a memoir and that was in 2018. Um, and since then you've done a few more things and um, our viewers can, I'd invite them to go buy your memoir, to read it, um, to listen to your story online on other podcasts. Um, I have a few other questions related more to kind of your life after, your thoughts about certain things. Um, and first I wanna dive into kind of the differences of you being in the United States, at least a green card holder, or you were. You didn't come through refugee resettlement here. Um, in the traditional sense that a lot of our other guests at Seeking Refuge have. And so I was just wondering how that impacted your adjustment to life in the United States. Um, many of the guests we interact with, they've had the refugee resettlement agencies help them, um, and you didn't really receive any of that. So what was that like? You're absolutely right. I, I, I was not entitled to the benefits that uh, refugees receive when they land in the United States. And I was one 
um, except before the day that I landed in the U.S. that I have, uh, you know, immediately became um, a green card holder because the process I came through this country is uh, the uh, green card. Um, in other words, the uh, immigrant visa lottery. So what's interesting about this visa lottery is pretty much it, it's, you know, not really very common that refugees win and at the same time arrive. And that was uh, something I sensed within the process of the interview with the State Department. They weren't quite sure how to handle it. And I, I got asked several questions, including, you know, I mean, you come from a country that doesn't does exist geographically, but doesn't, doesn't have any system, functioning government, right? So it was, it was quite a fight. Um, and one thing I would really like to say, coming back to your question, we need to humanize refugees. I mean, if you're a refugee, it doesn't really mean that you may not be able to do things that other people do. The lottery visa program wasn't only designed for, say, Japan, India, you know, Ethiopia, and other countries that, that have a functioning system. Somalia is one of the biggest producers of refugees. And this has been true for the last 30 something years. And the generation that has come out of this 30 years of war, I am one of them, right? So this perception of Somalia being displaced, that anybody who comes out from there is ignorant, illiterate, can't keep up with the, with the world that's going so fast, like don't speak English, like all these stereotypes. It's something that I've really felt around this period when I was going through my visa. So when I came to the US, so one thing I was not completely devastated, the fact that I was not going to receive those benefits because number one, I had the benefit of speaking English. So I was ready to dive right in the middle of work, right? I, that is one of the purposes that I was here. My family was extremely excited that I was gonna be working and making some money so that I could start supporting them financially, right? Luckily, I built a community before I even came here through my stories. So I had a family that volunteered who said, we have a room upstairs where you could stay as long as you can get on your foot and find a job and just fly out, you know, um, find your own way around. So the government didn't, didn't give me any, any benefits, but the Americans did. And that's really something, a message that I wanted to, uh, for people to understand, right? Otherwise, I don't even think I could, I could get my visa because one of the things that the U.S. government was asking was, who's sponsoring you financially? Where are you going to live in the U.S.? If I could not prove those two questions, if I didn't have a family who would say, well, until he finds his job, he's going to eat with us, he's going to stay with us, right? If that family didn't exist, I don't think they would issue a visa for me, right? So it's like you have to guarantee, and that shows you that America only recognizes refugees one way, but there are many ways we do come, right? Refugees could, could be uh, through student visa, F1 visa, B1 visa, HB visa. A lot of them are professionals. So how do you want to handle those? And so it's a discussion that's ongoing. Unfortunately, it's really hard to get in the bottom of the American immigration system. Whenever you try to do something about it, there's always this giant wall that you hit and I'm not giving up. And uh, just for the uh, listeners of this podcast, the more I dive into this, the more complicated it becomes. And, and you know, it's really hard 
And I don't think the US government is interested in listening to our concerns in the immigration system in this country. That was a fantastic response. Um, and there's so many things I want to dive into, but I, I completely agree that a lot of our systems are designed with certain types of people in mind, and especially the visa systems. If you kind of don't have a state, um, if you aren't there, it's very difficult. It's not really designed for stateless people or refugees or asylees who have traveled outside and then are still trying to get to the United States. So it's wonderful that you're trying to work on the back end of that to see if there's there's ways to switch that because it does need to change. Um, it needs to be more adaptable. One thing that you mentioned early on was the idea that a lot of Americans have of Somalians or um, not even Somalians, but refugees. I mean, so many identities. And what are some things that you want to correct, some misconceptions, some truths? You know, there's an English expression. It says, charity begins at home. So let's start with the language that we use. Let's humanize the word refugee itself. Let's start calling people who are refugees, people seeking refuge, right? Let's not use refugee itself as a badge that people have. It's something that has bothered me for a while. For example, and you know this, the title of my book is called Me a Bear, right? I have always wanted to become full participant on planet Earth. And that's something ref most refugees don't feel. They're disconnected. They don't have the honor that they deserve, right? From either the host country or even sometimes in the United States. So let's start with, with the language itself, right? Let's call refugees people seeking asylum, seeking refuge, which is nothing wrong. I mean, it has happened in the Second World War in, in, in a white dominant Europe. They came out of it. And people who have really done those work where people who are seeking refuge, they built their communities, they stood up together, and then the next generation sort of like took it up from there. But we humans are very forgetful. So that's where I would like to start to humanize this community. We're not people just showing up at the airport, looking around with an empty brain. That's not who we are. We're people with talent. A lot of us are professors. A lot of us are, are hard workers, right? Uh, I speak four languages. And that's more than me, so. Except for Somali, which is my native language. I have learned everything else, right? English, completely from the movies, right? How many Americans can do that? I know people who have PhDs, but only speak English. And that, you know, like the excuse is like, I really don't have time to like sit in front of a TV and just listen to that. So who am I? Why, why don't you see my story as, this is really amazing. These people are not only bringing themselves here, they're bringing a lot of talents, right? They're the ones we need for translations, for interpretation, because America wants to be part of the globe. We're not isolated. We're not surrounded by a wall, right? That's the nation we are. We're a nation of immigrants where everybody's, you know, it's coming here and Americans are going out, finding some sort of a workshop somewhere in Turkey and other places. And we're living in a world that's now becoming more like a village, right? And and with that, the refugees benefit this country so many ways. So let's start having this conversation at the dinner table. Let young people in the middle school, in high school, and college level start thinking thoroughly about this situation. Really go to neighbors, neighborhoods where there are refugees and immigrants. Do not be uh, scared by the rhetoric that's out there that 
we're not adopting, we're not interested, you know, this and that. Nobody wants to leave their culture. So we're so attached to that and I'm not giving, giving it up. However, we refugees are the ones who are 89, 90% of the times like compromising things, adopting more American things. We're the ones who are learning how to bake, right? Uh, pies, uh, we're the ones who are uh, trying everything they can to get into cross country skiing. And I've been doing this you know, for a while and we don't do that in Somalia. So it's just like, it's not Americanizing actually. It's just uh, modernizing sort of like, because we live in this country. So we have to do, you know, things that we do. So once we humanize, I think that creates a, a less hostile environment for the young people, even for the conservatives who are scared of refugees. And, you know, if you have a friend or a group of friends from different backgrounds, you sort of get to know how wonderful it is to hang out with them, to just go sleep over in one of your classmates' houses and get to know their moms, the way they talk, the way they like handle things at home, you know, things like that. And then I think uh, I, I think Americans really need that. And by the way, I live in Maine, which is, uh, you can Google this, the, I think the whitest state in the country. So the challenges are even, you know, um, a little bit more compared to like if I was in New York or New Hampshire or Massachusetts and other places. So it's a, it's a daily um, experience. Yes, I appreciate that. Um, it reminds me a lot of the parallel discussion concerning immigrants who cross the border into the United States illegally and how people will refer to them as simply illegals, um, which is kind of saying that they're illegal as exist for existing um, and needs to stop. And we've talked about that. And I haven't heard as much rhetoric around the label refugee. Um, so I appreciate you bringing that up and trying to reframe the discussion as people who are seeking refuge instead of the label of refugee that can, especially as you mentioned in more conservative cultures can suggest different things. Going back to another thing you mentioned about having that conversation with younger individuals, you recently um, published a young adult version of your memoir, which I was super excited to see. Um, I just reread your regular memoir. Um, so I'll take a second before I go and read the young adult version, but that's super exciting and to see it on shelves and hopefully to have kids becoming involved in that discussion and being exposed to these kinds of stories at an early age. Could you just walk us through a little bit of the, the thought process surrounding it um, and what kind of things you took out and why you even wanted to maybe tone down some things for that audience? So when my memoir came out in, on my birthday, June 20, 2018, I uh, immediately got, uh, with, uh, with the help of my publisher and the community, um, I was able to get my book into schools. And I, I paid very close attention to how young people will react to the story in the book. In other words, will they understand some of the difficult stories that I have documented? Chapter one and two and three and four and five aren't really easy, right? In other words, from age five of my life up to um, 24. There's a mix of, as you probably remember from my book, of a beautiful human story. The Abdi who likes music, who's moonwalking with Michael Jackson's music, you know, listens to Tupac, loves movies, like every American child pretty much loves something, right? And playing hide and seek with his friends, going out with girls to the, to the beach, like. And then things quickly changing when 2006 Al-Shabaab comes in and you have to lose all the liberty and 
the freedom, like a sense of existence just like evaporates. And I think it's right there where the kids don't understand because they have never even come closer to thinking that way, right? We're taking everything for granted. We're in the United States. And I think every American teenager that I have talked to doesn't ever come across a way of like, what? Something happening that I can't go to movies anymore? Like, right? Those kind of stuff. And so they were asking questions and the kids were really trying to pay attention to, to the writing. And I remember uh, one time I presented in a middle school here in Maine that I had a discussion with a, uh, in a circle with a, with a group of young teenagers, you know, who were saying, what does it feel like to be starving, to be hungry, not to have food in your belly, not to have food in your house? Like, what's the feeling? Because I don't understand, right? Um, nobody that I have talked to so far has never gone a day without eating, right? The, the kids usually assume that there has to be some food. But then in my childhood, it didn't exist. I was the one at age seven who really went out and brought food home to my mother and my sister. So the kids were just trying to, to like, okay, how does that feel? And that was really interesting. And that is the moment I thought, the book's a little heavy for you guys, right? It, I understand these questions are great. So I turned it into a young adult in a language that is slightly comfortable for them. However, I still recommend that they read the first edition as long as there's an adult in the room. So if you're reading with your mother or dad or aunt or your older brother, your older sibling, you know, things like that. Uh, because if you have a question, they will respond. I'm the author, but I'm not always available. Right at that moment, when this child is like stuck at chapter three, right, um, where he keeps going back and forth, it's like, how did Abdi survive this? Like, how's that even possible, right? Uh, but I'm not there to answer to them. But the parent would say, well, because Abdi didn't have a choice. It was either go die or just try leaving. And he was doing everything in his power. And then the parent has to walk through those steps of survival and resilience with a child so that they can understand because it's not an environment that, that makes them understand. So that is why I had to turn the book. And my publisher is, was extremely excited that we were able to do that in a way that the kids can understand. So it's a lot shorter and there's a brand new introduction at the beginning of the young adult. And, you know, and, and so it's, it's a language that anybody under 18 up to 12 is able to read. I love the idea that it probably fosters a lot more conversations between younger children or young adults and, and their family and their parents, parents who might not go to the library and pick up your book or might be too busy with work to, to read. And then when their kids bring it home and they have to explain it to them and they have to do it with them. Hopefully that means your audience is almost doubled and kids and their families are having more of these difficult conversations and learning together, which I, I believe is the goal, as you mentioned earlier, of first having the conversations among other people and then bringing everyone into the circle and making sure that you're surrounding yourself with more diverse individuals. I've spoken with a few people who, who have never had the opportunity to travel outside of the United States, and they might use that maybe not as an excuse, um, but saying like, oh, they just maybe not are as worldly or um, uh, have that kind of knowledge. And I think that being in the United States and in a place that is very diverse, we should be taking a look at who we're surrounding ourselves with and saying, even if I can't get outside the United States, there are so many people here who have other stories and experiences. Transitioning a little on that fact of 
diverse groups. You mentioned how the people in Maine really helped you, um, that family. I know you talked about Team Abdi. Has that continued? Like, have you continued to receive a lot of help having those conversations? Or I know many things have happened in the past four years, especially with President Trump and his rhetoric. Have things shifted? How has that been? Well, Team, team Abdi did their job. They, they helped me the most difficult times of my life. But when I came to the U.S., Team Abdi switched from helping Abdi to becoming a team. I'm going to give you an update. And I, you might have already known this by Google, but I have, a, I have a brother, Hassan, right? When I came to the U.S., I became part of Team Abdi. I, I w- always was, but like this time, it was like, okay, now I'm going to, um, you know, it's like how um, in soccer they switch teams this mm-hmm. team goes that way and you know so it <laughs> yes. felt the same way this time I, it was not my brother and I in this limbo but I was like felt here I was I'm safe I can meet him Abdi for dinner right and that's exactly what we did I, I gathered most of them luckily were in New England so uh, Margaret drove from Vermont Neen and Polly drove from Sharon and Git were here and we had a couple come from Chicago. So it's just like Team Abdi came together in Maine for a Thanksgiving and Christmas, right? We're sitting together. But I was the one who said, hey, it's too early to celebrate, right? Not there yet because half of me is gone. Like not complete. My brother, he, he would give up everything of his life for me because I was a young brother. So when I got here, I felt, hey, it's not only that I need to work and send money to my mother, I I have to do everything in my power to support my brother. While we were having that conversation, Trump got elected. And the travel ban happened, if you remember, early 2017. And I, I had panic attack when my brother called me and he said, I just received an email from the State Department, Trump's State Department, that tells my brother in a very precise language that all avenues have exhausted. This is a diplomatic language, which in other words means you're not coming to the US. The America that I have loved, America that I have really always dreamed about, just vanished in front of my face. I I was the most disappointed human being, I believe, in this country, in this system, in our president, everything else, I, I just said, the words that I said that day was like, America, well, Trump and his people have betrayed my American dream. Because this is not the America that I've really grown up knowing, liking, you know, all that. So we jumped into action. Team Abdi came together. We fundraised for my brother. We, uh, I'm saying we, like, we were sending emails and stuff like that. So we connected with Ken. Anyways, long, long story <laughs> short, Hassan is in Toronto as we speak. So he's no longer in Kenya. He's no longer a refugee. He made it not to the United States, but to our neighbor, Canada. And I was trying to convince him to write, call me Canadian. And then he says, well, I didn't grow up liking Canada. You know, we all like America. And then maybe call me North American, right? That's the better way to say it. Uh, he's safe. He has a wife and three kids. And they're only nine hours drive from me right now. I could get to them by before midnight. <laughs> <laughs> So um, 
Well, I was kidding, a little bit, a little after me. <laughs> almost 4.30 here. So yes, um, and Team Abdi is still there. And now we are actually having a conversation about what we should do with my mother, what we should do with my sister and her kids. And Team Abdi are, I believe, more energized than they, than they have ever been. Like they felt that their actions could help people. And Team Abdi has exploded. Since I published my memoir, more people have reached out, interested in joining Team Abdi. And I'm like, well, we can build a community. Fortunately, for the moment, there's nothing I can do in terms of immigration-wise for my mother and my sister because they're in Somalia. They're not even refugees yet. They're locally displaced. And there's nothing you can do. There's nothing Team Abdi can do to convince the uh, Biden administration to get me as an American citizen to help my brother, my sorry, my mother and my sister and her kids to come over to the United States. For our listeners who, um, despite you saying that there's there's currently not a lot that you can do, for listeners who want to help maybe people who are going through similar things to what you went through, or what, what would you tell them? Like what avenues exist for them? So for listeners who are in the same situation I was, refugees or asylums, you know, and things like that, my advice is number one, do not give up. Seriously, what you fight for will always come knocking at your door. I had trillion times almost given up, right? I, I felt America was too far. America wasn't interested. Like, this is not going to happen. But Tim, Happy, and my brother and my family always said, don't give up, right? And, and that has really got me going. For other listeners who are really interested in supporting and helping refugees, Number one, you should not freak out. It's, there's definitely more advantage in having people who are seeking refuge, people who are seeking asylum in your community, even in your house. Uh, it always pays off when this person gets to know their things, right? Um, one example is when I joined my family in Yarmouth, I was nobody, basically. I was just this refugee. And then all of a sudden, I became pretty well known in the neighborhood because I was talking about my story and my family ended up being interviewed on television and radio. And, you know, it, it just, it just sometimes the help that you do really gets you. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you're, you're going to become a celebrity. That's never good. Right. But it, it makes you feel proud of your actions. So sadly, number of refugees out there in the globe has almost tripled ever since I came to this country. The number was, I think, less than 50,000 in general around Africa, but today we're talking about nearly 100 million people all over the world who are basically including refugees, locally displaced, and everything else. So, and it's gonna grow up, as you may probably know with what's happening in Ukraine, and probably who knows what's gonna happen, you know, for the rest of the world. And we have responsibility, and we're all part of that responsibility. And again, refugees are beneficial to our country, to our society, to our economy, to our education and all of that. So why don't we want them, right? It's not that they're coming sitting around, they're actually contributing. I've been paying tax since I've <laughs> come to this country. I've always been supporting my family and, and, and this country has benefited more than I benefited myself. So yeah, and, and I think we all have that responsibility as Americans. Um, 
people in, in this position to help others. So don't be afraid. That's wonderful. And bouncing off of that in terms of being individuals who are more understanding of other people's situations. In your memoir, you speak a lot about how you finally realized you were suffering from PTSD and that a lot of other people who are seeking refuge or who have been resettled also go through those situations. Um, And I remember a tweet from your Twitter profile stuck out about how the fireworks remind you of the bombings in Mogadishu. And that's something that I don't think a lot of people think about when we think about people seeking refuge. We think more about maybe the hardships that they went through to get to the country and then the language barrier and employment barriers. Um, But what are some other, I don't want to say small because that is obviously a huge problem, but what are some maybe lesser known issues that you or people in your your situation have gone through that Americans and our listeners would be um, better off knowing to be more understanding? Well, one thing we should know is that Jalu trauma does not go away. It's It's a permanent scar in our memories, remember that. The, the first weeks and months when I started working on my memoir, um, I have cried a lot. And I usually think that I'm strong enough to not really cry, right? That's what I thought. But I was talking to my mother to ask her to go back to some really terrifying moments of our lives. I lost a young sister, Sadia, who should have been 27 today. I mean, this month, but I had to ask my mother to talk about the sister that we have lost, not due to a disease, but due to hunger, drought, right? She wasn't getting milk and and buried her. So she and I sort of like cried on the phone while I was talking to her. And that's a moment I realized how storytelling itself for refugees is, is just a trauma. It's a constant trauma. Most of the refugees in this country either have to tell their story one way or another. A lot of them prefer not to do so for the purpose of them not going back to those memories because it's like digging up the wound. So it's a conflict. If you tell it, it benefits the the others, you know, those who are interested in reading about it. It just humanizes your story in some ways because you're strong enough to have survived all of that. So it's, it's a daily trauma, I would say, uh, particularly refugees who have lived through war. There are refugees who have not lived through war, but have lived through other means of, of difficulties in their lives. But uh, mine and others, particularly from Somalia and Syria and Afghanistan and other places, gosh, it's, it's a lot. Well, the other thing I would, uh, I would say is that if you're a refugee in this country and you have your, some of your family back where you came from like I do, mom, sister, things like that. It really does not help with the trauma healing. I have, and I spend a lot of money on a counselor um, therapist because I suffer a lot from not only PSTD, PTSD, sorry, and panic attack. In other words, the moment I close my eyes and fall asleep, it's a nightmare to wake up screaming and like things were happening in my dreams. And, and then there is the, day panic attacks, which is sometimes I'm sitting with friends, we're having a great time somewhere in a restaurant in downtown Portland, like it happened to me many times. And then all of a sudden the panic attack hits and I'm shivering. There's this cold feeling is sort of like going through my body. But luckily with my doctor and counselor, there are things that I have learned, tricks that I have learned that can make things better or sometimes medications that I do take. Those help a lot. So I would remind people that we're having a smile. We have the happiest faces sometimes, but 
deep inside, we might be suffering. And you should respect that sometimes when there's space that we need. Do not assume that we're aggressive. Uh, if I have to get up from the dinner table and go upstairs and spend 20 minutes resting, trying to gather myself, um, that is, I think, some advice that, well, my family knows that. So whenever that situation happens, they totally understand. They give me the privacy and all of that. But I would say for anybody who's interested in having refugee as a friend, don't be um, insulted. Or don't feel like this person doesn't like the conversation, things like that. Sometimes um, we just have to get a way to, or to get ourselves that moment of healing or praying or things like that. It's heartbreaking to hear. And that begs the question, or one thing I want to ask you is, what has kept you, I guess, going and continuing to tell your story? Um, and especially in such a public manner, I, a lot of refugees will, I guess they won't be as public as you are. Um, and you even risked your safety back when you were in Somalia and Kenya. What like kept you doing that and then continuing to tell your story today, um, especially when it's kind of just re-traumatizing every time? Well, one thing I learned was like, tell it or don't tell it, like it's the same, right? because you're remembering this moment. It could be sometimes, like I said earlier, like talking to your mother and digging up this, that could just make it make it really worse. But it pays off as long as you are writing or doing a radio story about that because it makes other people listen and understand. So um, the main reason I do tell my story these days, I was also on a TED Talk and I definitely go to radios and I sit in front of a camera. I'm not, I'm not shy, I'm not, you know. But the reason I do that is we're living in a world where people misunderstand refugee stories, right? We, we are not what, what you see on New York Times or CNN. You know, it, it's just those like brief five minute story of displaced people crowded in tents or more than that. So whenever I tell my story, I like to humanize it. Yes, we're talking about terrifying moments in our lives, but also like I'm talking to you right now. I'm sitting here with a smile on my face. And the moment we hang out, I'm gonna dive into this book or I'm gonna have to write something, right? So uh, we're human, that's number one. People need to understand that, that we are like everybody else. But we are, we are not less unless, you know, if not, we're more, right? There's no less. And like, I don't think I worth less than anybody else. I haven't had all the opportunities this country provides to its people obviously didn't go to high school, didn't go to middle school. I didn't have those opportunities, but nothing stopped me. I finished college, one of the best colleges in, in New England, Boston College in the United States, right? Getting into it was really, really, really hard, particularly someone whose English is his second language, someone who has not has learned math and science in high school. But like, I did not believe that there was a limit, just kept going. And that's how I see storytelling. There's just no limit. It terrifies you, it scares you, it takes you back to difficult memories, but just keep going because the more you tell your story, the more it convinces others that, wow, what we call refugees are actually humans like us. They have a lot more resilience. And, I, and those are the labels that I want people to, to, to see when they see us. They don't have to see suffering, hunger, drought, famine, you know, all the negativities. Just let's reuse those words. If you use resilience for my story, I'll be very happy. If you use hunger and drought and famine and death and destruction, even though those things have happened, that's negative. Let's just use other words. Why don't you use, you know, multilingual guy, uh, multicultural man, the resilient man, the guy who's really not giving up, right? Those, those kind of things. And I think those motivate everybody else.
when I was reading your memoir um, and what I was thinking about before you mentioned it was the word resilient um, and watching or reading, I guess, how much work you put into trying to come to the United States. And I know in your book, you attribute some of it to luck. But I, when I was reading, couldn't help but think, I mean, yes, that does exist. Um, and it's part of the reason why you are here and other people are not. But the work you put in learning English, um, despite the wishes of your your family and your community and continuing to try and apply to get to the United States using a student visa and then getting denied, but saying, we'll keep trying another one and having the, the transcript be incorrect and trying again and continuing, continuing to fight. Resilient is probably the best word. And so it's really inspiring to see that. And I can't imagine um, you stopping, I guess, anytime soon. So what are your your future plans? I know you're working on a documentary, but you've also expressed in your memoir the desire to be um, president of Somalia. So so what's the goal? So on chapter 16 of my book, uh, oh, I think it was the epilogue. I, I mentioned that I was going to run for Somali president, but actually the words that I have used was somehow trying to become a little bit more rebellious in the system of Somalia. It's, it's, a, it's a tribal country. And so I was saying, maybe I'll be the first Somali-American other than Somali Rahan Wayne, right? Which is my clan uh, president. Um, that's a work in progress. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to be a president anytime soon, <laughs> but I have gathered like-minded young people of my age um, and even younger who are absolutely ready for change in our country and who want to move away from this uh, tribalistic system that has been in the place for a very, very long time. So uh, one engine that's moving everything forward now is education. And everybody that I've really uh, caught up with, brilliant people who went to college, brilliant people who are reading books um, and have are thinking critically, right? We're not thinking the tribalistic mindset of our ancestors or our fathers um, who just don't see the rest of the world. And most importantly, just sort of like discussing what kind of government do we need? Democratic, liberal, like what do we need, right? We're having that conversation and we're trying to come halfway. And I think one thing that's critically important here is empowering women, empowering girls, right? I don't want any other Somali girl to go through what my sister's went the body harm, they, they like, you deserve to stay home, things like that. So, you know, the way I see it is more like Martin Luther King Jr. sort of like era in some ways. And then um, if it works out fine, uh, I'll be more than happy to become the leader of president of that beautiful, beautiful country. Um, if not, I will definitely back up other people. But that's definitely something that we have to talk about maybe five years from now. Yeah, it appears you more want to be a leader of a movement. And then if it works out that you're the leader of the state too, then you'll take it, which is, it's super cool that you found a way to kind of be um, Abdi the American and be in America, but still have dreams about Somalia and how you can improve it and kind of merging those identities. Um, I'm really excited to see kind of what you do and how you continue. This will be the last question. It's always my favorite to ask. Um, and it's just, what else do you want to share with our listeners? Like if you could tell them one thing or remind them if there's anything I haven't asked or that you want to say, what would you tell them? Okay, well, uh, hey, you guys need to go read books written by people like myself. There are a lot of amazing books that just recently came out and I recommend a few of them that I've been reading and reviewing. 
just go read The Last Nomad by, by Sugri Sal. For those of you who like Call Me American. In Call Me American, I've talked not really in depth, but a little bit about the Somali nomadic culture, particularly my mother. I was not really lucky enough to live through that life. Uh, they moved into the city and then I was born, right? But Sugri is much older than I am, but she just wrote a, her memoir, which I have read and reviewed. So if you want to know a lot about this amazing nomadic culture, the poetry that's included in Somalis, Somali world and stuff like that. If you're interested in that era, just go ahead and read that. The other thing I would just say is that let's all come together in humanity, right? Hold hands. I believe that that's possible. Uh, I'm very devastated in the fact that we're kind of going downwards in this country with growing movement of racism. Obviously, there's not whatever we do, I can still see that there is so much hate towards not only people of skin color, but like all the other layers that someone like me carries. A refugee, a Muslim, you know, Somali, an immigrant. And so as long as those exist, it's really hard to belong. It's really hard to feel like fully American. Um, so walk with us. That was Abdi Noor Ifton talking to Jackie Burnett about his memoir, Call Me American, and his life in the United States. We really encourage you to read Call Me American, which can be found at local bookstores, online booksellers, as well as Amazon. If you liked this episode, be sure to like, subscribe, rate, and review us in the comments below. It really helps. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com or you can find us on social media at Refuge Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. This show is produced by undergraduate students at the University of South Carolina. Your host for this week was Jackie Burnett. This episode was edited by Jackie and produced by Claire Mattis. Our executive producer is Aiden Thomason. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.